Hello everyone, this is your host Anvesh Purohit. Welcome to my personal run where I put forward my beliefs and try to find answers to my fundamental queries. So what you're about to listen to right now is an audio transcript of the post that I've shared on my blog. Do check it out. I've shared the link right here. And yes, do enjoy the audio blog. Evil comes from a failure to think. It defies thought for as soon as thought tries to engage itself with evil and examine the premises and principles from which it originates, it is frustrated because it finds nothing there. That is the banality of evil. Hannah Arendt. In the modern social paradigm inclusive of different behavioral patterns, psychological warfares and enlightenment, the antiquated idea of separating the good from the evil still remains untouched. An average human being of this civilization isn't a rational thinker per se and has always had binary stances about the things that he has experienced or encountered. The ridiculous notion is that we perceive something to be either good or label it as something that is outright sinister or bad. Now, if we articulate the definition of the term evil and dive deep into exploring the human psyche in order to find out what subjugates the senses of a man while differentiating the evil deeds from the good ones, we will come to a profound realization that the entire idea holds a lot of weight and rationality which we still have to discover psychologically. Philosopher Hannah Arendt coined the controversial phrase the banality of evil with respect to the trials conducted by the Israeli government against Adolf Eichmann. He was a German high official who was hanged by the State of Israel for his part in the Holocaust, the Nazi extermination of Jews during World War. Hannah Arendt is wildly popularized to be the person who had the courage to put a dent in the sphere of common beliefs of understanding about the philosophy of differentiating the good from the evil which was particularly viewed in a very orthodox parlance till then. She put forward a very thought-provoking question as to whether a man can commit evil deeds without being evil himself. Eichmann, according to Arendt, was an average, somewhat bland bureaucrat who was neither twisted nor cruel, but terrifyingly normal. He behaved without any motive or ideology of committing menacing war crimes. His only purpose was to advance his career within the Nazi administration. In her 1963 examination of the case, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, she determined and put forward the idea that Eichmann was not an amoral monster. Instead, he was someone deprived of rationality. He committed terrible acts without intending to do so, a fact linked to his thoughtlessness, or disconnection from the reality of his bad activities. In any normal scenario, being a product of authority, Eichmann was just obeying the orders of his superiors. He didn't have the cognitive ability to justify his actions or deeds. He didn't have the basic perception of linking his deeds to the consequences they held to the people as well as to the entire history. He wanted to perform the best job he could without thinking about the outcome. He wanted to be a competent manager regardless of the situation he was in. So, another way of putting this to perspective is he didn't make any moral judgments himself. The greatest downside to his psyche was the fact that he didn't ask any ethical questions to the authority about the correctness of the job that he was doing. Now, let's analyze every aspect of this case in a very brief manner. There are two parts to this case. First, we will question the justification with which Hannah Arendt put forward her ideas about Adolf Eichmann and then we will question the moral foundations of the Israeli government while capturing, trying and then putting a death penalty on Eichmann's name. In my opinion, the only misunderstood proposition in the entire thesis by Hannah Arendt is that the theory paid too much attention in diving deep into the psyche of Eichmann rather than examining his actions and the reasons for his trials and execution by the Israeli government. 
he was obviously the person behind transporting millions of Jews to the bleak concentration camps. Even though, he did it by turning a blind eye to the ideology of Nazism, believed in committing to his work and had no qualms of questioning his authority, he was still involved in the genocide of millions of people. The humanistic approach to the study of Eichmann ends right there. Though he was not a designer of the final solution, he was still an implementer of the wicked genocide. And that is where we draw the line and base the framework of differentiating moral consciousness of identifying the repercussion of our actions and being completely devoid of reasons and humanistic morals while committing to our acts and a specific job. We can draw a parallel between Eichmann's character and the protagonist in the 1942 book named The Stranger written by Albert Camus in which the protagonist kills a person without any reason or moral cause. Now, if you think about the case with pure conscience and without any sign of ambiguity, you will realize that even though Miss Hannah Arendt characterized Eichmann as a normal human being who was just devoid of individual thought processes and had no logical reasons and conscious thoughts of questioning the authority, one can counter-argue that a person with such characteristics is clearly defined as a monster. Let's examine the political and moral foundations with which the Israeli government carried the entire operation of Eichmann's capture. They proceeded to get him from Argentina where he was hiding under a fake name, captured him, took him back to Israel, passed laws to attempt him by including a capital punishment, and later executed him. Not only did the government violate the international guidelines, made their own rules and laws but also introduced the punishment of death sentence in order to execute Eichmann. Now, this whole scenario can be termed as something that was illegal but legitimate. The reason I'm stressing on this idea is because if the Israeli government wouldn't have interfered in this situation and captured him, he would have escaped. Neither the International UN Council would have allowed them to carry this operation nor the government of Argentina would have allowed them to take Eichmann back to Israel. We need to also understand the fact that they were trying to put a guy on trial who was involved in war crimes before Israel was even established as an independent state. There's another important fact to ponder in this entire scenario and it is to explore the reason as to why the Israeli government problematically violated the legal codes and honors of the International Council. What the Israeli government did was blindly follow the philosophy of doing the right thing. They didn't follow any particular code of conduct while trying Eichmann because they were scared that a man with a history of such inhuman acts of genocide, mass murders and war would escape and then they wouldn't be able to bring their people to justice. They wouldn't have let that happen in any given circumstances. To put this to perspective, I would like conclude this article by quoting Dr. Ian Shapiro from one of his lectures titled The Eichmann Case and Problem of Illegal but Legitimate Acts. With respect to the moral consequences of Israel's operation in capturing Eichmann, he says and I quote, this is the kind of situation where, as somebody once said, what you have to do is recognize that you're going to have to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Because if you ask for permission, by the time you get permission, if you ever get it, the disaster will already have occurred. And so this is this idea that when moral considerations are sufficiently compelling, it becomes unavoidable that you make the decision to act, and you recognize that what you're doing is illegal. But there it is.